I think it was about three months after our family had moved here to Idaho. It's hard to believe it's been like 17 years ago, but my oldest son, Trey, and I had gone to Walmart, and we had to get a few groceries, and so we were coming out, we had, you know, I was pushing the cart. You know how kids jump on the side of a cart? I remember that, that Trey was jumping on, he had jumped on, was holding on to the side of the shopping cart. So we, we come out of Walmart, and you got the little crosswalk there in the front, we, we you know, passed the crosswalk, and we were going down the, the aisle to where we had parked. And as, as we, I don't know, we were probably, I don't know, six or seven car lengths away. And Trey, he's three years old, sees our car. He jumps off the car and takes off running for the car. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm pushing the cart. Like, I, he's, he's ahead of me. He was on the front. He's, he's running. But, but Trey did not see what I saw. He did not see that just a couple, uh, couple lane, uh, spaces up ahead of him, a car was backing out. And there was absolutely no way, there was absolutely no way that the, the car, the driver of the car could have seen Trey. I mean, he's a, he's a little dude and he's running. And so, so in that moment, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, they tell you how like everything just kind of goes like really slow. I don't think it happened, but because all I, I just, I, I, I saw this is not going to be, this is not going to be good. And man, with everything I have within me, I yelled, Trey, stop. And my son froze and he turned around and dude literally just burst into tears as the car pulled out, missed him by about this much when the driver saw my son they about lost it. But literally, he was this far from being hit by the car. And I, I got to be honest with you, when all of this went down, I didn't have, you know, like a, like, hey, what do you think I ought to do here in this, this situation? Like, you know, what should I do here? It, can I take a poll real quick? No. You see that unless Trey stops there is some major damage that's getting ready to take place. I did not care what people thought of me when I screamed at my son. No, I did not care. I would also say this. I didn't want to hurt my son, but it did not bother me that he burst into tears. He didn't understand that he was shocked and hurt by me yelling at him because I was able to see what he couldn't see. And one of the best things was that sense of urgency of saying, you got to listen. And I used that, that account, I was thinking of that this week as I was preparing for this message. We're kicking off a, a series that we had not planned on doing this year, but it just seems like over the last several weeks, there's been so many things that have taken place in our community in families of, of those that attend Grace, friends, that it just seems like the, somebody said it this way after the first service. They said it's almost like there's a sense of heaviness that you cannot escape. And I've felt that. And I've had this sense of, of urgency. And so today, I'm gonna preach the first of three messages and the way I've, I've put it is like, if I had the chance to share three messages with a person, if I, if I knew I'd never, if I'd never see them again, these are the three messages over the next three weeks that I would want them to hear. 
And this morning, as you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, you might want to go ahead and also flip over to 1 John 5, because I'm going to eventually get there, and you can mark that. You're like, if, you're like, I can't do that on my phone. I know. Bring, bring a real Bible. You, you can do that. You know, you got that little string thing. This is why you do that. But, uh, but uh, I, I'm going to eventually get to 1 John 5, but we're going to begin in Matthew 25. But I've got to, I really, honestly, I, my main point, my big point is, is not something that's like you've never heard before. Like, in fact, I'll guarantee you that most of us have heard this. Like, even if you're here today and you're just kicking the whole thing on this Jesus thing and you're not even sure why you showed up or you just showed up to make mom happy or whatever, listen to me. You've probably heard this. Here's what I'm hitting today. My big point is four words. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And so we're going to be, we're going to be talking about this this morning. Now, that leads us to the question that I want to throw out there. It's a big question that I want to address this morning. And the question is this, are you ready? Are you ready? You know, when you, when you, when you say Jesus coming again, I, I think there's a, like a mixture of emotions with that. And, and I think we've all been to different places across the time. Maybe it's discomfort. You, you hear that and immediately it makes you a little uncomfortable. Because you're like, yeah, that whole thing, uh, Jesus coming back, like there's this book they're going to open up and... I don't know, God's holy and I'm not. And so, so maybe there's this, there's this sense of, of discomfort. Maybe for some of you, it's just denial. You just don't want to think about it. Like, it's like, hey, can we just like sing another worship song and not, not talk about this? I, I, would actually, I, I would say that for some of us, maybe it brings about this, this, this emotion of maybe disappointment you're like, oh, that's terrible. Who? No, listen, before I got my license, I'm like, Jesus, if you could wait till after I drive a little bit before you come back, that would be great. And I'm gonna be honest with you. You think I'm, I am not lying when I say this. Like before we got married, I'm like, Jesus, if you could wait till after the wedding, that would be amazing, you know? And so, so you know, maybe it's like, yeah, I want Jesus to come back, but, but I've got these, these things, these, these plans. Maybe it's just anticipation. You're like, Lord, would you get us out of here, man? He's like, let's go. You're ready. Whatever the case happens to be, I'll guarantee you, there's a lot of, of different emotions that, that, come, that, that come when we're talking about this. And so today, I want us to look at, at Matthew chapter 25, but let me, let me just set a little bit of context. If you go back to Matthew 24, Matthew 25 is the continuation of a, of a conversation that started when the disciples and Jesus walked out of the temple. Now, time-wise, time Jesus is going to be uh, going to the cross not, not too long from, from this time. So they've been to the temple, they walk out of the temple, and Herod's temple was one of the, one of the major wonders of the world. It was incredible. And so as they walk out, his disciples are, are commenting on how incredible this is. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, it, we, we see the conversation. As they're talking about, man, this is amazing, Jesus says, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, you know, I hate to, hate to be a, put a damper on your, your spirits here, but this whole thing's getting ready to come down. And what he's doing here is he's foretelling what was going to be taking place in AD 70, which the Romans were going to 
They were going to destroy large parts of Jerusalem. Literally, Herod's temple was going to fall. Where he, when he said not one stone would be on top, would be remain on top of another, he's, he, he was talking about it. They dismantled this this world-renowned building. Jesus says this. The disciples are like, "What in the world?" And they they ask, "Well, so." So this is the end of the age, so, so give us some signs of the times. So, so, so Jesus is talking about this. Now, you've got to understand the first part of Matthew 24 as we read. He's talking specifically about what is taking place uh, in, in AD 70. But in Matthew 24, he shifts from talking about this, and, and he shifts his attention to what is going to come when the Son of Man comes back, and he's referring to himself. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, but, but, but what we see is in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 44, he, he challenges them. He said, you have to be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, that's, that's important. And, and so what, what we know, what we know is, if, even if you go back to verse 36, he said, you know, that day, that hour, no, no man knows, not, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. It's the Father only who knows this. Now, a lot of people tried to figure it out, right? Like, how many cults have sprung up with a leader that says, Jesus is coming back, and they'll give the date. Or, the world is going to end here, I mean, you know, there was the, there was the Mayan calendar, uh, you know, a few years ago. They, well, I think it was 2012. It was supposed to end then. Nostradamus made all these prophecies and all that sort of thing. That, that dude that wrote uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Again, you know, uh, in 1988, that didn't go so well. So he wrote a sequel, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Again. <laughs> And the last was because he didn't come last year. Anyway, but they, you know, every, everybody, like, like there are people who have like all the charts and they've got all these things. They're figuring out the timing. We've got, we've got our scheme. Well, the reality is we, we, can, we can see signs of the times because Jesus gave us signs of the times, but we don't know the day. We don't know the hour that Jesus is returning. He just says, be ready. And so after challenging his servants, especially, uh, specifically those with spiritual influence to be ready to be about the master's business, we get into Matthew 25. And, and here's what he, what, what he does. He introduces three stories in Matthew 25. Now, we're only going to look at the first story, the first parable, but, but there are three things that these three parables have in common. Number one, Jesus is coming back at a, at a, at a time that people, they're not, they're not going to be expecting his return. Number two, when he comes back, there are only going to be two groups of people. There's not going to be like multiple groups, like ready, not ready, kind of ready. There's going to be two groups of people. And when he comes back, this is where we just start getting uncomfortable because we're like, I don't want to think of this. There's going to be an eternal division that takes place. And the third thing that these things have in common that's crazy is that the people who are not taken with the son of man they're going to be utterly surprised that they, that they weren't taken. It's, just, it's, it's actually, what the, the message that I have is, is sobering because Jesus is coming again. The question has to be asked, are you ready? And the sense of urgency that I feel as your, as your pastor is, is to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. 
that we're not caught up in a, in a, in a lot of like theoretical type things. I just wanna get down to what the word of God says about this. And my goal before we leave here today is that we can know that we know that we know. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus begins the, the, the parable. Then the kingdom of heaven, he says in verse one, will be like 10 virgins, or you, know, you might have a, a translation that, that translates that bridesmaids, but it, it'll be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, I'm gonna pause here because the story is talking about uh, young ladies who are heading to the groom's house. There's gonna be a wedding feast that's gonna, that's gonna take place. Now, probably a lot of us don't understand the Jewish, uh, Jewish culture back then when it came to weddings and how things went down. So let me just break this down because it actually sheds a lot of light on what we're gonna read here. Probably it's gonna, it's gonna shed some light on other portions of scripture. As I'm sharing this, you may be like, oh, that makes sense why he, Jesus said this, how this all fits together. But, but here's how things would go down. Let me just, first of all, say it's totally different the way we do things, right? Like, like now, like today, like you get engaged, it's a major production. Like, you now have, like, videographers and trees, like, photographers coming up over a sand dune, getting the perfect picture. Like, I am so glad that that didn't exist when I asked Lori to marry me, because I had to ask her three times, and that would have been really embarrassing to have that documented for the entire world to see. <laughs> but, you know, now, you know, you get engaged, and then you start planning for what? The wedding. You start playing for the big day. You start putting, you know, we got to get the taxes. You got to get the music together. We got to do all of this. You got to, you know, say yes to the dress. You know, you're going to, like I said, I said Macy's and I got rebuked in the first service. Like, they're not going to Macy's for a wedding dress. They're going to a bridal shop. Excuse, going to a bridal shop for your wedding dress. Like, I mean, it's a big deal. Like, even where you, you seat people for the reception matters because there's going to be feelings hurt for all of eternity because of where you put them. Okay, so it's like totally different because here's how it went down. There were five major components of this whole ceremony. First of all, first of all, the groom would not find the, the lady that he wanted to marry, the, the bride, and say, you know what? I am going to woo her heart. I'm going to win her. This is going to be amazing. No, he went to the dad and said, hey, I'd like to marry your daughter. Sometimes they didn't even know each other. That's kind of weird. Like, uh, actually, sometimes, if I understand my research correctly, the groom I'm sorry, the, the, the father of the bride would actually put out word, yeah, she's ready to get married. We're moving around. You know what I'm saying? So, so, that, so it started there. The bride could actually speak to this, but at the end of the day, there was an agreement that was made between the groom and the father of the bride. Well, once that was decided, they would actually have a ceremony in, in which it would be the, the closest thing when we talk about engagement, where, where this would take place, where they're betrothed. And so it would begin them separately. You know, he, he's over here uh, in a room. She's over here in another room. They would have a ritual bath. It was a cleansing. It was a setting apart. They're prepared. They're, they're pure. They're purifying themselves for this marriage. They, there, would actually be, there, would, there would actually be vows that were made. There would be the exchange of something valuable. Sometimes it was a ring. Sometimes it would be something else. And then they would seal the ceremony by drinking uh, from the same cup of wine. That was what, the, what was part of their engagement. Now, here, here was the crazy thing. 
in the eyes of, 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 of the Jews, they were committed. They were one. Now, here was the thing. They did not, they, they went back to their separate homes. But if you think about it, think about when Jesus was born. Remember the whole thing with Joseph and Mary. Mary's found to be pregnant. And Joseph, uh, is, he's like, man, I gotta put her away. He, you would have to write a divorce to get out of engagement. So like, you better make sure you know she's the one you wanna marry and he's the guy you wanna marry before you do this. Because he was gonna put Mary away, but he's gonna do it privately because she actually could have been killed because of, of what was going on in, in Jewish custom. But here's what, here's what they would do. They, they are committed in the eyes of the law, but they, they, do, not, they, they do not have, uh, have uh, sexual intimacy. They, the bride stays at her home. The groom goes to his home. Now, they're, they're doing different things. The groom goes to prepare for his bride. What he would do is at his father's, his father's house, you didn't just go out, buy a plot of land and build a house. You didn't have that option usually. What you would do is you would build a room onto the father's house where you were going to take the bride. That was where you were going to live. So the, the groom would go and he would prepare the room. Now the bride, on the other hand, would go back. There were three things that she would do. First of all, she would wait nine months. And you can probably figure out why you'd have to wait nine months just to make sure that there was no impurity or she wasn't pregnant or anything like that. That was a big thing in Jewish culture. But during this time, it was also a time of consecration where the bride would, would actually would, would get rid of anything that was, that, that was a priority to her. Her marriage was what mattered. She would prepare, she would consecrate herself for what was to come so she was ready. And then the third thing was this. She would prepare, she would, she would make her wedding garments. Now, when, when it came to the wedding day, even the groom did not know when, what, when the wedding day was going to be. You're like, hold on a second, that's, that's weird. No. The groom's father was the one who made the determination that the groom was ready, that the room was ready, that everything was good to go. And it was the groom's father that gave the go-ahead. And once he got the go-ahead... The groom would get, it, get his friends, they would blow, the, they had this, this like a ram's horn shofar, they would blow the shofar, behold the bridegroom comes, he, he would get his friends and there'd be this like big celebration, they made a lot of noise and they would go to the home of the bride uh, to get the bride and, and what they would do is they would, they would get the bride and they would bring the bride to the groom's house and at the groom's, where, where the groom lived, his home, they would have a celebration. So like, like we think of a, a reception that lasts like two hours, three hours, this was a seven-day celebration. Like, it was a party. Think about that. You're like, you're not just figuring out the catering for a meal. It's like, we got to feed these people for seven days. And so, I mean, it was a major, major deal. And so, when I give you all of this background information... To make sure that we understand, first of all, when Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the son. He's talking about himself while I'm here, only the father. He's using a marriage metaphor. And then he goes into this, this whole idea of, of marriage. When we see that the, the virgins, the bridesmaids, are, are going, they're not going to the home of the bride. They're going to the home of the groom. They're going to be there when the bride and groom show up for the party. They've taken, they, as we're going to see, they've, they've come and they're, they're preparing for this. 
And what we see in verse 2 of Matthew 25 is that five of these girls were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Don't miss that. They were all asleep. And I I just want to just pause. The reason why, again, I feel the urgency to preach this message is because it's very easy for all of us to fall asleep. It's like, he's delaying his coming. He's not here. We begin to think of everything else. And, and, And so it's not just the foolish who fell asleep, the wise and the foolish fell asleep. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps and to get, you know, they're prepared to, to get things lit. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Like everybody's had that friend. Like you go out to eat, like, oh man, I, I forgot my wallet. Can you give me enough? Like everybody's had that friend, right? The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. But the wise answers saying, since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus concluded by saying this, watch therefore, and he's just repeating what he said earlier, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And you know, it's interesting because the similarities is what everybody else would observe on the surface. Like all the women showed up, all the girls showed up. They all had an invitation. They all, they, they all were ready for the feast. I say they were ready for the feast. You would think they were ready for the feast. But the differences between the wise and the foolish weren't clear until the groom showed up. Jesus is coming again. My question is this, are you ready? You know, (laughs) I hear this a lot, I doubt, I'm trying to think. I can't even remember the last time a week went by where somebody either, you know, email or in conversation said, man, don't you think, don't you think the, the Lord could come back anytime? I mean, you just look around, look, look at everything that's going on. And I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, you look around, just it's a crazy time. And so my answer is always, yeah, I don't know. I just know that we're closer today to his return than we've ever been before. Yeah, that's my stock, stock answer. It's true. But it's interesting because for, for, for many of us, we, we live, even if we're believers, believing that he's going to return, but not living mindfully as if he could return today. But the thing that I want to share with you this morning, church, is that Jesus is coming again. And this question, are we ready, is one that we need to be able to answer. And this is where I want you to go over to 1 John chapter 5. This is where I want you to go over to 1 John chapter 5. Because to answer that question, are, are you ready, I think requires a second follow-up question. And that question is this, how can we know that we are ready? 
And, and, and that's, this is where I want to spend the rest of my time because I want to come back to what I said earlier. Church, listen to me. Unlike those who believe that you cannot have assurance in this life as to whether or not you are ready for the return of the Lord, I don't believe that. In fact, I, 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 believe, I believe that we can have assurance based on a number of things, including what we read here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John, John is always very clear about why he's writing. For instance, when he writes the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31, he said, I, here's why I wrote the, the, this. He said, I, I wanted you to, to hear and see these signs, these works that he did and believe on the Son of Jesus Christ that you may have life. We get to 1 John chapter 5. He gives us his mission statement. Here's why he wrote it. He said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know that you have eternal life. And church, I want us to understand that, that, that we can know. Are there, are there days in, in which we're, we're, we're just caught up in the busyness? Yes. I mean, I'll guarantee if we, if we shared calendars, you're busy. I'm busy. You have, you have activities. I mean, like, just kids' sports alone, you're like driving 17 places on a weekend, right? You get that. Like when it, when it comes to, to school events, when it comes to job requirements, all of this thing, we're busy and it's, it's so easy to get caught up in, in, in the day-to-day things that we just don't think of this. This message is simply a reminder. Jesus is coming again, but we've got to answer this question. Are we ready? It's how that we can know that it's very important. And so there are four assurances of readiness that I want to share with you as we close our, our time here this morning. You see, before he, he said, I write these things to you that you may know, in, in chapter 5, he breaks some of these things down. For instance, we begin reading in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. Our assurance of readiness, first of all, comes from the fact that we have been born again. We've been born again. This is what he's talking about. And you're like, I don't get that language. I don't get the whole born again language. That's just weird. I can't wrap my mind around it. I get that, okay? So first of all, I've said this. If you're taking notes, like write down somewhere John chapter three uh, because there's a great conversation that Jesus has with a guy who's struggling with the same concept. And, and I, I mean, that might shed some light on that. But let me, just, let me just say this. When I'm talking about being born again, it literally means that we have been made alive spiritually. Like we're not born alive spiritually. We're born spiritually dead. Paul says it this way in Ephesians uh, chapter two. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, he brings us to life. And, and, And so here's what we've got to understand. This is the work of God. He makes us alive. This is, a, this is a, a powerful thing. It's this act of God awakening spiritual life within us, and that's very important. It's the act of God awakening spiritual life within us, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. God does his work so we can do our work. Our work is just to respond in, in faith, uh, believing in what Christ did for us. And that's why it's important, guys, that we're here. We're hearing what Christ has done for us. But the Apostle Paul said, How, you know, we're, we, are, uh, we are saved by, by faith. But this, this faith comes by hearing. And, and that's why it's important that we hear what Christ has done so we can have faith. There are many reasons why it's important that we gather. And guys, church, why it's important that we share. We have the opportunity and the responsibility of sharing this so that people know. 
It's so important because many of us think that, that maybe we're the ones that brought ourselves to new life. No, you didn't. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. God's grace goes before the grace of salvation to draw us. He, he does not have to do that. And yet God in his grace brings us to salvation. And then we are saved by grace through faith. And listen to me, we are kept by grace through faith. This is the work of God. We have been born again. We can be around the things of God. Listen to me. We can be around the things of God and not be born again. We can speak of the things of God and not be born again. We can give, we can serve, we can do all of these things. But if we have not been born again, church, this is the cold, hard truth. We are not ready. And in this day and age, listen, man, we're all into easy believism. And church, I've got to be straight up honest with you. You cannot earn your way with a few good deeds here and there into the kingdom of God. We must be born again. This is what John is saying. But we can know that we have been born again. Because it doesn't just stop there. This, this assurance of readiness also comes from the fact that we're also walking in love. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. We walk in love with each other. When we are harboring hatred and bitterness towards another brother or sister, we will not have assurance of readiness. And church, I'm going to just get, I'm just going to hit this. The church has dropped the ball in the last, man, I'm going to say the last 10, 15 years when it comes to showing the world that we are his disciples. We are not known by our love for each other. We're known by love for our comfort we're known by love for our rights. We are known by love for our political candidates. We are not known by our love for one another, by and large. And church, it's time we called out the crap. And right now, if you're more uh, offended that I said the word crap than you are what I'm talking about, it's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Guys, this, this is an issue. This is an issue. Listen, you can't, you, you, you read what Jesus has to say, you read through the New Testament. It's, man, it's found all through 1 John. It's found all through the Gospel of John. We will be known by our love for one another. And, and this, this assurance comes from the fact that it's not just a profession I've made with my mouth. It's, it's something that I possess. It is absolutely transformed. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I am not naturally a loving person. I can be a jerk. I know that, you know, it's like, oh, you couldn't be a jerk. Yes, I can. <laughs> I'm competitive to the bone. Like, you do not want to play board games with me. I'm bitter. I am I'm an even worse winner than I am loser. I'm telling you, here's who I am. <laughs> but the reality, church, is when we are changed, what speaks to the change is also the fact that we are walking in love, there's an assurance. I'm not living this bitter hatred. I'm not obsessed and consumed with everyone that I disagree with. If the first thing that you do when you get up in the morning and the last thing you do at night is to check what kind of response you got to the social media post where you slam somebody, you're not living right. I got one amen out of that. I appreciate that, Barry, you're good. I'm not going to listen to that, that assurance that I'm talking about. We can know that we know. This is awesome, guys. 
starts, we're born again. We're walking in love towards each other. Number three, John says, what also anchors this is that we are walking in obedience. Verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter one, he said we actually confirm our calling and collection and election. And what, what I mean, what, what he means by that is we just, there's confirmation in the fact that God's set us apart, that, that he's done the work, just in the fact that we are pursuing him. It's actually confirmation. Because guess what? None of us are like naturally obedient. <laughs> I see that hand. Like, like we're, we're not naturally obedient, right? And so like even when it says his commands are not burdensome, you're like, yeah, I actually, that's maybe the first Bible verse I disagree with because his commands are burdensome. Well, let me, let me give you some context here. The reason they're burdensome doesn't have to do with, with our love for, for him and the fact that he set us apart. His commands become burdensome when we desire to do something else. When our love for me and my way and what I want supersedes and dominates my love for God. Let's just call it what it is. Listen, when we are walking in obedience, though, there's this, there's this assurance. I mean, think about it. I was just sharing with, with a young girl this morning at the end of the first service. She was asking some questions. And, and, and I said, just think about like a school. Like, you know what one of the rules are and you violate this and you know you're in violation and you know that if your teacher finds out, you're busted. I said, do you want to be around your teacher? Well, no. Like, yeah, exactly. There, there's this like, this separate, there's this lack of intimacy there. We're, we, we don't have assurance because we know we're not living in obedience. Now, does God's grace give up on us? No. Is there a lack of assurance? Yeah, there's a lack of assurance. But I will also say this. A person who lives in rebellion, first, John says this uh, in 1 John chapter three, you've never, uh, it's not just that you don't know the Father, you've never known the Father when you walk in deliberate rebellion against God. You've made a profession, perhaps, you don't have possession of faith. Well, I don't like that, I don't think that's right. I, Take it up with John. Like, you're gonna see him someday, you know? Take it up with him. But here's a beautiful thing, man. We can know that we know we've been born again. We're walking in love. We're, we're obeying. That clock is like going really fast today. And the last thing that I would say is that we're walking by faith in Christ. John, John says in verse four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I love that, man. Isn't that, that is cool right there. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? We can walk by faith in Christ and that changes everything. And it comes back to, listen, if you're putting your faith in your performance, dude, you're gonna be miserable because if you're like me, I blow it, right? I get it, I just, the only difference between you and me is I get to get up here and talk about it. You're, no, you're not talking about it, right? We, 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 we mess up. We sin, there, there are things, it might not be deliberate, it might not be rebellious, but we, we fall short of the glory of God. If our confidence is in our performance, when we blow it, when we mess up, guess what? We're filled with shame and condemnation. There is no victory. We're not overcoming the world because we're like, we're like what a loser I am. We don't walk in our faith in our performance. We walk in our faith in Christ's performance. What he did was enough. It was enough then, it's enough today, and it's gonna be enough to take us home. Amen. 
This is the beauty. This is the assurance that we can have. We've been born again. We are walking in love, walking in obedience, walking by faith in Christ. I love, I love that in the question that he asked in, in, in verse five, that, that that word believe, like if you go to the Greek text, and I'm not gonna get like all weird on you or whatever, but, but it, it's in the present tense, which indicates a present continuing activity. It means that I didn't just believe one day, I am continuing to believe today. That believing has not stopped. And, and when, it, when it talks about being, you know, being born of God, it's also translated a child of God. It's in the perfect tense, which indicates it was a past event that has continued consequences. What, what he started then, he's going to finish. I'm going to walk, but it's gonna be his, his grace and his power that gets me home. My part is my faith in Christ's work. Ah, oh, it fires me up. Because what I love about this is if we're ready... What Jesus said to his disciples in John 14 have tremendous potential. I want you to listen to the marriage language. I'll, I'll guarantee you, you've heard these words, but you've never heard of them before because you didn't know that Jesus was using a marriage metaphor when he said, chapter 14, verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Literally what we, just, what we read here in, in John chapter 14 is the engagement. It's the, it is the groom making a commitment to his bride. I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to build you a room. And when I'm done building that room, I'm coming back and I'm going to take you with me that where I am, there you will be also. And that promise that I'm coming back for you, it should be a powerful promise for us, church. This world, what we see, it's not the end. It reminds me of a, of a story I read several years ago uh, about the, uh, uh, it was, I think it was December, I don't know, it was sometime in December of 1988, there was a massive earthquake that hit the country of Armenia. And uh, a, a dad had dropped his son off at school that morning and he had told his, his son before he left, he said, you, you, I want you to always remember this, Armin, just know that I will always be there for you. You go have a good day. And, and it, was, it was a thing that he did with his son. His son ran into school. He went to work. The earthquake hit through, uh, while, while his kids were at school. His office wasn't that damaged, uh, but he immediately, he's thinking of his son. He leaves his office, runs to the, where the school is, and it is worse than you could even imagine. The school had collapsed, the roof had collapsed, just rubble everywhere. This, this man, he knew where his son's classroom was. He just ran to that general area and started just pulling back stones, pulling back stones, pulling back stones. And, and while he's doing this, he's been there for a few minutes. Other parents are coming. They're crying. They're weeping and wailing. They're, they're, they're working with him. And, and so they're doing this an hour, two hours, three hours. Hands are getting bloody. F uh, people that are there with him, the parents, some of them just start wailing and they give up and they walk away. They said, we're not, we're not gonna be able to get there. The police are there. In fact, the police are trying to get him away. They're saying, don't get in the way of, of what we're doing. We're trying to get to people. And he's like, you don't understand. I'm going to find my son. 
You can read this story. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy story for, for eight hours, for 12 hours, for, for 16 hours, 24 hours, 32 hours. He's digging, shouting, Armin, Armin, can you hear me? Armin, can you hear me? And miracle of all miracles, it was the 33rd hour that he'd been there on the site. By this time, his, his voice is hoarse and, Armin, can you hear me? He's trying to get his attention and he hears a weak voice that says, Dad, Dad, is that you? Armin, it's me. And his son said, I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you would save me. And that when you saved me, you'd save them too. Long story short, out of the 30-some kids that were in the classroom, 15 of those kids were rescued that day. Tremendous, tremendous account. But I thought about that as I was thinking about the promise that Jesus made. I'm, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming back. You don't know when I'm going to come back? There might be a lot of things that, that collapse or it feels like the whole world is caving in. You look around like, what's going on, man? I never thought I'd have to walk this journey. And you're calling, you're calling out, how long, Lord, how long? Some of you, you just got caught up in the, in the, in the busyness of life. Everything, you just don't think about the fact. But, but here's the thing. Jesus made his bride a promise, and the groom always keeps his promise. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but Jesus is coming again. The question is, are you ready and the good news is, you can be ready. Because what I love is that with the cross, Jesus anchored his promise to his people and, make it, and, and gave us the, the ability to be, his, to be children of God. With his resurrection, when that stone rolled away, when he walked out, he sealed that promise and said, listen, there's nothing that's holding me back. And today, church, we can respond in confidence to that promise. And so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray a closing prayer. I'm, I, out of all of these, these messages that, you know, the, the three messages that God's laid on my heart, this one I, is just where it's at, church. I want us to get caught up in just busyness and things. I want us to remember Christ is coming back. And so here's what I'm gonna do. At the end of my prayer, you can be dismissed. Don't forget to stop by the trunk or treat table or the, you know, the fostering Idaho. It's so good to have a fostering Idaho uh, uh, volunteers with us today. Um, but, but if you're here and you're like, I'm not ready, I'm gonna hang up. I'm gonna hang out here in the front as long as it takes and just come on down. We've got other people that'll pray. I, here's a nice thing. Today's the day of salvation. You can leave knowing that you're ready. Father, thank you so much for the promise that we have that Jesus is coming again. And our God, it's a promise that we hang on to in uncertain days. It's a promise that we hang on to when we look around and we see what is taking place, when we see the fear that grips so many hearts, when we see the grief that is consuming many even here in our church family. Dear God, it's what we hold on to in the sense of bitter division in a divided country what we hold on to in the face of perhaps overwhelming obstacles. Jesus is coming again. And God, my prayer is that we would be found ready, that we would be prepared. God, we, we sleep 
The wise and the foolish both slept. God, if we're asleep, would you awaken us? May we hear those words, behold, the bridegroom comes. But Lord, I would say, if there are those who have not been ready, I'm praying that in your grace and your goodness, you have awakened them, that you've opened their eyes. And Lord, that before they leave here today, they could know, not because I've saved them or anybody's talked them into something, but because you and your grace have done, thanks to Christ's work, what has to be done for us to know that we know that we know. And so Lord, because of the promise we have of Jesus' return, we pray this with confidence, believing the best is yet to come. And we pray this in the strong name of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.